Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. Serena, what are we talking about this week? Today, we are talking about, and here's my attempt at saying his name, Geert Wilders. Nobody come for us. That's my best attempt at saying his name, and I think it's completely correct. You got a good amount of phlegm in there, which is the key to speaking Dutch. Spit. (laughs) It makes me feel like a cat. Anyway, he is a Dutch politician who, two weeks ago, won the election in the country, which I think came to a surprise, well, for everyone, I think including him himself. I was very surprised by it because I think that the Netherlands kind of has this image of being a very progressive, liberal place. If you don't know who Geert Wilders is, he's basically an incredibly right... I don't even know if I would call him a politician. I mean, I guess he's a politician, but he's kind of more of a showman, you know what I mean? He's a politician, he's been around for a really long time, and he is on the right, and he stands for, you know, anti-immigration, he's got some weird ties to the Kremlin, he's Islamophobic, so on and so forth. You know, you basically get the picture. And so I guess I was really just marinating on him this since he came into power because to be honest, I was not that aware of him. I don't really know what's going on in Dutch politics. I was very surprised that he came into power. And so I was like, let's talk about it. Oh, he's been around for ages. He is very much a politician because he's soon to become a Nestor, which is the longest standing member of parliament. So he's been around for ages. What's really interesting is a couple of things. He has been around with all of this like anti uh, banning headscarves, outlawing mosques, stopping Muslim immigration and all that kind of stuff for a long time. And all of that stuff is actually quite anti-constitutional. The first article of the Dutch constitution is like literally about freedom of religion. Which, yeah, I think technically makes it kind of a free standard society. And then he came into power and I think it's kind of like an indicator of two things one is that somebody who's just been like on the margins for such a long time and seen as a marginal kind of voice became mainstream he won about like 25% of the vote which is massive like it's quarter of the population but in the Netherlands it's a real proportional representative system so they've got about 16 parties right now I think before they had like 21 parties they've got all these weird parties like the farmers party which he might form a coalition with they're in coalition talks right now and like we can see whether he can make a coalition or not but like it's he has been in coalition before with the Christian Democrats in 2010 to 2012 and then he didn't accept certain cuts that they wanted to propose and basically that ruined that entire coalition and government so since then he hasn't really been a viable coalition partner simply because if you form a coalition you do have to kind of agree to stuff because that's the point of the coalition so he's been seen as a unreliable partner but it is interesting that he has moved so you know into the mainstream and it's a bit like the AFD here they're you know on equal power with the 
SPD or whatever right now with 30%. So it's like a good indicator of how like the right has become really central Mm -hmm. in Europe. He's kind of interesting to me though, because if you read about like his views on stuff, like obviously his, you know, Islamophobia and all of that is terrible. But then for example, he's not a climate denier. So he doesn't really fall into the like normal pattern of a right wing person, which is fascinating. So he, for example, believes that the climate crisis is something that we all need to work on together. Like he's like, the Netherlands can't solve this on their own. And you're like, what? This doesn't fit into the normal pattern. This one might be kind of an opportunistic one, but he has spoken out for LGBTQIA rights, but only in the context of, oh yeah, Islam is a threat to LGBTQIA rights. So it's I don't know if it's a f- in favor of, but more against another thing. You know, he's using it, but it's kind of weird. Even so, because there's there's sort of like a formula for all of these far right people, and he kind of circumnavigates it a bit. But I think that's one of the reasons why the far right has come into the mainstream. So what happened with him is he was always going on about the Islamophobia thing, which made him like a bit of a crackpot. And what's actually really interesting is that he got his views from when he was really, really young. He went to work in the West Bank in the settlement. Yes, an illegal settlement. An illegal settlement. And that's where he really internalized that anti-Arab thing. And it's continued he brought it you know into europe it's so interesting i tried to do some research about this because all i found online was he traveled in neighboring countries and i could not nail it down anymore of where he went yeah i saw a documentary about this him once and i've forgotten what the neighboring countries are i think maybe jordan yeah but uh, yeah i can't i don't know about the facts about that but then why he won this election first of all is that the last government run by Mark Rutte, who was in power for 13 years, basically, in different forms of coalitions, that coalition just broke down in the summer because they could not reach an agreement about migrants, basically, and refugees and asylum seekers. So Rutte wanted to put much more hard line on this, and then his left coalition partners couldn't agree to that, and so the whole thing fell apart. And... This is also an indication about how this like hard line anti migrant anti refugee thing has like come into the mainstream like all the mainstream parties have taken this from the far right, and then that made for this like kind of snap election that happened just now that made immigrants a main topic, and that was his topic for the last twenty five years but also what's really interesting is that he is not just speaking on this issue. Like you said, you know, before it used to be just those issues, but now all of these far-right parties have clocked on to the fact that there is a housing crisis in the Netherlands, massive. They're short of 300,000. There is the cost of living thing that is happening everywhere. You know, how to do a green transition without people being bankrupted for it, like normal people who have families and normal jobs and stuff and all of that sort of stuff, retirement age. So he's gone into all of those things, which actually speak to the people. And what's stunning to me is that the people in the center, they had this logic, which turned out not to be a good hypothesis, that we will stop the far right if we just take some of their anti-immigrant policies or whatever in with us, then like, 
we're going to stop the far right. But instead, what they did is they legitimized the far right views. They normalized these views. And then the far right went into all sorts of policy areas. And some of them are, you know, like they also offering like simple solutions to people that concern their lives. And I just don't get it why everyone in the center is not like, hey, maybe we should solve people's problems like the housing crisis in a practical way instead of being like, yeah, maybe we should become super racist. And it's also happened like here in Berlin with Oyun, which is a cultural institute. It got its funding cut because it was it wanted to do a, an event with Jewish Voices for Peace. And the person who shut down this LGBTQIA marginalized voices cultural institute, the person who like suggested the shutting down was from the AFD anyway. And then the CDU, which is like center right, I mean, they're pretty right by now. Pretty right. They're almost AFD by now. But like they took that and then they cut their funding. So it's like the far right is influencing the center. And the center is disappearing, but the center is not learning anything from the far right about like the actual things that they are doing that are working, which is like, yes, let's solve people's problems and people are tired of the establishment. They're not taking those lessons. And I just don't get it. Like everyone has polls. Everyone has like marketing experts. Everyone has like algorithms and insights and data. And like, if it's obvious to us sitting here, it must be, I mean... How hard is this? I think maybe the answer is that they don't actually want to solve people's problems, that they just want to stay in power. But they even cannot stay in power unless they address those issues. So they thought, oh, we'll stay in power if we go totally racist. That was fine. But not we'll stay in power, oh, if we actually address the housing crisis in a way that's kind of competent. Yeah, I mean... They'll just always find someone new to blame for the housing crisis. I mean, it's gotten super ridiculous in Berlin. Did you see now that they put out a umfrage about what they're supposed to build on the Tempelhofer Feld? They should not build on the Tempelhofer Feld. No. Full stop. They should absolutely not. But um, they're idiots. I don't have anything more intellectual to say on that other than the fact that our mayor seems to be the most world's most ridiculous person and they don't seem to understand that you have to make affordable housing not build on the Tempelhofer Feld because people still need parks and open spaces. We live in a world where public spaces in which you're just allowed to exist without paying, without something to be demanded of you are further shrinking and taking away something like Tempelhofer Feld, which is not just incredibly important for that reason, but also just, you know, a park we need parks we need nature in this city and that's also like is a park in the inner city yeah but anyway back to Gert. i'm just having fun saying his name now he is kind of a an interesting one to me because he seemed to really really hone in on this idea of like he has very much dedicated his career to being anti-islam but what's interesting is in this election, he was, everyone said that he was much milder on that. But he did say Islam, that Islam is in our DNA still. So he didn't, he just didn't go on about it as much. He went on about different things, mm -hmm. which were the things that people wanted to hear about. Also, he is saying like, in order to solve the problems, he will like maybe not try to do the, you know, banning 
Muslim schools or whatever, which you actually can't because it's anti-constitutional. You can't actually get a coalition on this because then you're changing the rule of law, which we talked about with Anya in our Poland episode. It seems like he talked to a political advisor who, like, advised him on how to win an election. And what's actually really interesting is because he did a lot of, you know, your general good policies, which is lowering the retirement age, which is solving the housing crisis. But, like, obviously those are for a particular type of Dutch person, namely, like, white Dutch people, Mm -hmm. not Dutch people who are Muslim or of colour or anything. But he he did speak to that. But it's really funny because ING, which is, like, uh, the biggest Dutch bank, did an analysis of his policies. His politics is described as welfare chauvinism. (laughs) So, like... The welfare bit is there, but like he's chauvinistic, you know, uh, for in terms of like who he's going to give those benefits for. But anyway, ING looked at all of his policies like Euroscepticism, the expansionary economy and stuff. And they said, well, it needs then therefore more foreign labor in order to make his views work. So it's not like his um, ideas are really going to necessarily work, right? Because it's kind of unworkable. You can promise all you like, but in reality, whether you'd be able to do it is a different question. But he does know how to promise things that speak to people. And he, in fact, does come from, like, the regions which, you know, he has a little bit of a regional accent. He has that kind of everyman sort of thing. I mean, the Dutch are very down-to-earth, even, like, Martin, you know, went all the time by bike everywhere. There are, like, videos on social media about, like, Dutch people just riding up next to him and talking to him about politics and stuff. So, like, they're very, like, down-to-earth and they don't like that sort of... Uh, establishment and I think Marta became part of the establishment so this is just like an anti-establishment vote it's also a very racist vote let's be honest super interesting if Olaf Scholz was you know biking around actually you know what no I don't care about Olaf Scholz if Annalena Baerbock was just biking around I would go give her a piece of my mind I mean Olaf Scholz too but he seems kind of stupid so I just feel like it would be talking to a wall where I feel like she's a bit more intelligent I don't know. Who else is there? Oh, there's Habeck. Oh, Habeck. Oh, yeah. You could give him a piece of mind. Yeah, I could give... Oh, I could give Habeck a, a lot of piece of my mind. Yes, yeah. Habeck, get on a bike and start biking around Berlin. That sounds like a threat. <laughs> I will not hurt you. I just want to talk to you. <laughs> I mean, he is with the Greens. He should be biking around. But this is also kind of what... Well, we know he's not biking around. But this is kind of what we've seen also with the Green Party in Germany, I think, because... What you were saying about making a lot of promises, it's super easy to promise things when you're not actually in power, right? And this is what the Greens have realized now, too. Like, the reality of leading a government is often very different than just being in the opposition and making so many promises. This is why my mom always says, in order to take the power out of places like the IFD, we should actually give them some power, because as soon as they have power, they will realize it's not as easy. I think that's a bad idea. I think that we should not do that. But I understand what she means because... It's like calling someone's bluff. It is also like I do like the idea of just being like sitting back and being like, now just watch your mistake explode. (laughs) But no, because that does lead to, in the end, a lot more actual impact on people's lives. Like in the Netherlands, for example, you know, people are worried about their status 
in the country there's going to be a lot more like racism because it is obviously um, legitimized they are being scapegoated there is this other otherness thing happening like people are being denied their humanity and their dutchness also because you can be dutch and muslim but according to the person who might just be in power or definitely will have a lot of power in the netherlands you just cannot be and yeah it's quite a scary situation because like yeah 25 percent of the the netherlands but in general if you look at european voting so 30 percent that's one in three europeans are voting right mm-hmm. so europe is becoming pretty fascist and there's also going to be maybe a swing within europe Because Europe has always been seen as like more of a liberal project because it was always like liberal, leftist, kind of no borders people, cosmopolitanism, not nationalistic people going for Europe. But now since Brexit, a lot of people don't want to leave Europe. But then all the people find that they have more power within Europe, but are kind of changing the idea of Europe into a right leaning institution. Mm-hmm. which is an interesting development. So this guy called Hans Kunani wrote a book called Euro Whiteness, where he says that actually what might replace our idea of being pro-European as an expression of cosmopolitanism, what might replace it could be called ethno-regionalism, which is an ethnic cultural version of European identity, which is a bit like ethno-nationalism, but which is closely connected to the idea of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically they think that they're defending European civilization. So what's happened recently, like I think they they agreed on like these new rules for migrants. In the end, it does come down to like people's lives recently. But like say, for example, if Orban or other people come into like power, you know, instead of Ursula van der Leyen, who's terrible anyway, but not as terrible as other people. She'll be out soon. Yeah, she'll be out soon. Belgium's in. And Belgium's in. But Belgium also, like, everything's turning a bit right. (laughs) So, like, what does that mean for the European policies on refugees? And already they're doing, the EU are doing deals with Tunisia and the Tunisians are taking refugees out into the desert and just leaving them there and stuff like that. Or, like, you know, loads of people are dying on this, like, Balkans route or in the Mediterranean, and then they're just... We are letting them die. We are not allowed to save them either, and they're just... People are just dying. And that's also an idea of Europe, like, that you... is protectionism, and it can be also very right wing idea europe so like you were saying like a lot of things like he's not climate skeptic it's the same with meloni in italy she's not a euro skeptic she's working very closely with europe so like the idea of like far right is like become like way more complex as mm. well and contradictory and stuff is kind of interesting yeah in 2015 spoke out against the european union actually and advocated for the netherlands leaving and something he called Nexit. <laughs> it's just fun to say Nexit. Um, Brexit, you know, the name started something and now we have to listen to all these terrible versions of it, which is ridiculous. But um, I, I kind of think that all these, you know, Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands included in that kind of have this like picture of being these really harmonious and happy and 
liberal and equal countries, right? I think like the Netherlands was like the first country in the world to have marriage equality, which is something they're very proud of. I was in the Netherlands recently and I was at an event and I was talking to these two girls and they were telling me about how much of a catastrophe child support and like kindergarten, like kindergarten is not free in the Netherlands, you have to pay for it. And they were just explaining how disastrous it actually is. And I was like, that does not compute with the version of the Netherlands I've always had in my head. I did research it later, and apparently there are plans to make it free. But these plans have now been pushed back to 2027 because of budget cuts and, you know, making kindergarten free is never sort of a priority. And then also, I was in Denmark and in Sweden recently. We were in Memu and like we walked right into Quran burning, which was which was what a what a first day in the city. And we were like, what's happening here? It was very well. It was it was something I've never wanted, never want to witness again. I think it's also interesting because, for example, the Dutch are seen as very liberal yes. because of certain things, and I think those things are that they legalized marijuana and drugs. They have a very liberal approach to this, and they have a very liberal approach to sex work. Yep. On the other hand, however, those are capitalistic patriarchal things in the end sex work is is the objectification of women respect sex workers that's cool but it is based on fundamental patriarchal capitalistic exchange and so is the drugs thing i was reading susan sontag recently Mm -hmm. her book on women is amazing (laughs) but anyway about the swing to the far right she says i'm just going to quote her fair enough she's a smart lady I would maintain that fascism, far from being a political aberration whose greatest plausibility was confined to Europe and the interval between the two world wars, is the normal condition of the modern state. The condition to which the governments of all industrially advanced countries tend. Fascism, in other words, is the natural development of the values of the patriarchal state applied to the conditions and contradictions of 20th century mass society. Hmm. And therefore she also says, actually, she's linking it to feminism, so she says, Virginia Woolf was altogether correct when she declared in the late 1930s in a remarkable tract called Three Guineas, great essay, that the fight to liberate women is the fight against fascism. It came across like a similar idea in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you saw it. There was this great deep fake video made of our Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, where he declares that he is just banning the AFD. Have you seen it? You sent it, but I didn't get a chance to watch it. It's it's an amazing video. And it was made by the art collective, the Centrum for Politische Schönheit, like so the Centre for Political Beauty basically. But like they also, I don't know if you remember in 2016, they got all these tigers midst of the refugee crisis and they put them in a in a big pit like a coliseum and then just like were looking for refugees to feed to them. They do a lot of political stuff like that. They also like did, they set up a fake company where they offered the AFD to like distribute all of their leaflets. I can't remember which region it was in. And they collected like, I don't know, millions of all the all the leaflets of all the AFD offices and just like put them all in a warehouse and they just gather dust. Like it just totally, they do things like that. It's this kind of like political art stuff. 
I am pro that. That sounds great. And I was reading on their website recently about their approach and their idea. And their approach is basically called um, aggressive humanism. And this is the same argument, actually, that democracy is has got an inability to generate great human rights activists. Oh, wow. True. That democracies are convinced, generally, of their superiority. But in terms of human rights, they haven't generated good and effective human rights activists and they're also like they they look at it in a, particularly in a german context because they're a german based collective but anyway the idea of aggressive humanism is like really interesting because traditional humanism is sort of like really friendly and based on sort of this love and stuff and they're like no <laughs> <laughs> we want to fight for human rights and we were calling for like really political resistance in a kind of more of an extreme fashion, which like is really interesting. The video they put out, which was a ban on the AFD, because like the question is, and I'm not sure about what the answer is, but the question is like, if the AFD were banned, would it solve the problem of fascism basically? And I think something has changed in Europe generally. I was listening to a Guardian interview with a journalist who used to work in Paris. And when Jean-Marie Le Pen, the father of Marine Le Pen, won one of the rounds of the presidential election and Jack Chirac had to debate him on national TV, Jack Chirac just flat out refused. He just said, like, I don't converse with fascists. And then he was not given the airtime at that time. But now we give, like the AFD, a lot of airtime, the media does, all of these views are aired everywhere. And I think it does actually affect the culture when those views are accepted, like society has a role to play in saying, well, that's unacceptable totally. And I think that was a really good video to put out just to show why it would be banned on the basis of the Holocaust, actually, the AFD, and to remind people of that. Because otherwise... I think people don't make the link or they forget it or they think it's kind of socially acceptable and the more socially acceptable it is, the more socially acceptable it becomes. Yeah, like your mother says, sure, 25% of the Netherlands voted for this guy. Let's see what he can do. That could also be a wake-up call, but also people's lives will be affected. So it's like, it's really... Mm. it's really difficult and also like sometimes if you put things away like if you don't discuss them or you don't air those views then where where are you on freedom of speech also because either you're for freedom of speech or you're not for freedom of speech so this is what Mm. tamana said in the interview i did with her she mentioned that she thinks it's good maybe not good maybe that's an exaggeration but she thinks that if we didn't have parties like the ifd we would just push the movement underground And at least this way, the people who have far-right views feel like they have a a Sprachrohr. Uh, It becomes problematic when they actually get power, but as long as they don't really have any power, it's kind of a way to be like, yeah, just go into that party and shut up. But I think the media is culpable to a certain extent, because they give far more airtime to AFD or the right than it does to extreme left weird people or the middle people or whatever because of newsworthiness and catching people's attention and attention economy and all this stuff 100 percent. so yes there's free speech but there's also like platforming people and like giving Mm -hmm. them a reach that they otherwise just would not have i mean i think we saw the perfect example with this when you put the querdenka with the case of lena e the leftist um, activist who was on trial if you see the way that 
you know, these Querdenker, when they stormed the Bundestag, right? They like broke through the police barricades and stormed towards the Bundestag. And it was like, the police was like, we can't do anything. Oh no. Whereas if anyone in any other political movement, I mean, I mentioned Lina E because that erupted into violence, mostly like, you know, clashes between the police and the leftist demonstrators. But also you see it with like any sort of pro-Palestine anything essentially at the moment, you're right. It's like, I mean, I think we all know it's because the police have a Nazi and a far-right problem. I guess that's the real answer. But if you look at it, the way that the the government and the police react to right extremists in any way, and the way they react to anyone else is so severely different. And then it's the language that they use in the media when they describe these different events is so dramatically different, yeah? Like... When you were watching the situation in Leipzig, right, I was following along on Helene Fares' stories, because she's a journalist, she lives in Leipzig, and her perception of the whole thing, like the way she was describing it, the videos she was showing it, was so completely different than what the television, like the mainstream German television, was showing. And you saw this reflected again with the Querdenker, like, they're always shown in such a harmless light on the news, and like, no, they actually, there's violence here. And why are we just ignoring that? Yeah, I think the media has a lot to do with it. And then also this idea of like aggressive humanism. I've been thinking about that quite a lot recently and also reading Susan Sontag as well. And I recently listened to a recording of an interview that the black academic and writer Kihendi Andrews did at the London Review Bookshop. And he was saying along the same lines of the humanism thing, he was saying, listen, it's called struggle for a reason. And actually, all of this, I mean, I don't agree with him totally on everything, but it was just an interesting point of view. And I, he's on to something somewhere. And I, and I think there's, there's a balance to be reached and there are different approaches and stuff. But I think he has a really good argument where, like, if you're just concerned about your own life hmm. and the fact that, you know, you're trying to make yourself more comfortable... And I mean, actually, even like, because he, he does criticize some black women writers about, you know, taking naps and stuff and centering yourself, which actually I think is really super important. But he's like, that is not an activist struggle. You know, you are not actively fighting for equality or a better human society in this case. So like, is all of our responsibilities not to be lazy either mm. when it comes to this stuff? And if we say we're not racist, because a lot of, I think some people were like, oh, I don't agree with his Muslim stuff, but I agree with the housing stuff. I think like that type of thing is super dangerous. Like, yeah, I understand it, but also you can't forgive it. I don't think it's forgivable. Mm. I think people need to take responsibility and be like, yeah, I'm not racist, therefore I'm not voting for it. And I don't care if um, my retirement age goes up a bit. Yeah, but people are selfish. They never look, as you say in German, über ihren eigenen Tellerrand. I think the real question that needs to be solved, and this is just mine, what the hell happened to Gert while he was in the Middle East? Something happened to him while he was there. But obviously he was on a, a settlement yeah. in the West Bank. Like, that happened. That's the situation. That was... is an extreme situation, actually. You find your community, you're at that age, when you go at that age, at like 18, 19, whatever he went, when you connect with a different place and you're finding yourself at this age is formative that is a formative experience do we know why he even went to israel 
do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have enough money to go to Australia, so he ended up going to Israel. <laughs> do you think <laughs> if he went to Australia instead, his entire obsession and campaign would be against like Aborigine people? A hundred percent. But there's not enough of them left because Australians did like a pretty good job of murdering all of them. But or would his thing be like everyone should do barbecues all the time or just general racism just general racism i think <laughs> instead of specific islamophobia against arab racism it's so fascinating this is a sliding door situation i think we should make a film <laughs> yeah the different shades of hurt wilder's trajectory different forms of racism that he could have chosen to be obsessed with you know the movie lola lola run lola run is that what it's called in english i think we should do that Every time it's a different situation. And it's like this one time he goes to Israel, one time he goes to Australia, one time he goes to... South America is a good one. South America, yeah. Anyway. And every time his future is different. Maybe he doesn't dye his hair peroxide blonde, which his hair is eventually going to fall out. Is it blonde? Yeah, I mean, yeah. is it dyed? It's dyed. It's oh. peroxide blonde. The Radio Netherlands once called him the most famous bleach blonde since Marilyn Monroe. So yeah, his hair is fake. I mean, his hair is not fake. His hair is real, but it's dyed bleach platinum blonde. That is not his natural hair color. I'm just saying, Boris Johnson, Trump, this guy, like people, if you see someone with dodgy hair running as a politician, general rule, don't vote for them. That's tip number one of today's three things you can do this week to be a better person. Do not vote for people with dodgy hair. It's hairist, I know. But listen, there's a clear pattern. Yes. You're up. Thing two, you can go to politicalbeauty.de, click on the tab Complicity, and donate to the Zentrum für politische Schönheit. They do some great initiatives, and it's really cool. Read Susan Sontag's On Women. It's a great book. Or if you're also interested, Kahindi Andrews wrote a book called The Psychosis of Whiteness. Also a great read if you're looking for something political to take you through the winter holidays. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.